Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Um, today, I want to talk about uh, poetry and translation, and I feel I need to go into this before we go into actually doing some of the ancient Chinese poetry, uh, because poetry does not translate the same way that everything else does, and it a lot of that has to do with the nature of poetry itself. So let's talk a little bit about poetry first, and then we'll go into the translation aspect. Uh, one of the things about poetry is that poetry is often very condensed language. Uh, what a poem can say in a few lines, it might take you, you know, 5, 10, 20 pages of prose to say. And a lot of this has to do with the origins of poetry. Now, we've talked about this before in the history of uh, English and American literature, but I want to re-hit it a little bit because it does apply to all literature in general. Uh, poetry is the oldest form of literature that we know of. Um, it predates writing in every single culture by hundreds, sometimes thousands of years. Uh, all cultures have poetry long before they have writing. And this is for a reason. Uh, the reason for this is that this is how everything was conveyed. This is how knowledge was kept. Um, you didn't have a way to write anything down, you didn't have a way to record anything, so you had to put it into some kind of uh, form that could be easily remembered, especially the longer uh, it becomes. So poetry is a way of transmitting culture, religion, bloodlines, uh, history, you know, all of these things are conveyed by poetry. Most people think of poetry as just well, this is, you know, something pretty about love or flowers or trees or whatever. And yes, poetry does have those aspects to it. But even when it does, it's really conveying more than you think. Now, one of the things, because poetry has always been about all of these things, it's much more complicated than it appears on the surface. Um, poetry has always been something that you are supposed to think about. You're supposed to basically meditate on. So even a short poem, you can read it in a you know a couple of minutes, but the if if you want to get anything out of it, you need to one, read it multiple times, but also think about it, you know, and, and kind of see how it plays into everything. Now <clears throat> when you have this very condensed writing uh, you're going to have multiple layers of meaning, and this is why it's condensed, and this is why prose often takes many pages to say what poetry can say in a few lines, because the surface meaning is not always and usually is never all the meaning that there is. There are usually layers of meaning beneath that. Um, there are parts of speech, there are illusions, uh, you know, an illusion uh would be to something that uh, the audience should know. And the audience is a varied uh, group of people because when poetry is written, there are usually multiple audiences in mind. There's a general audience, the general listener, the general reader, who the poet expects to be able to get a certain level of meaning. But often there are other audiences that are below the surface, people that you would say would be in the know, people who would be um, 
sort of passing along meanings that everybody else might not be getting. And this is one of the things about poetry, too, that a lot of people don't understand. A lot of it is very coded language. It's it's coded for, you know, certain people to get more meaning out of it than others. It's coded for things to be revealed and things to be uh, hidden from the general population and revealed to only a few people. And if you think it sounds kind of uh, clan, uh, clandestine a little bit, it is. Uh, poets have always had to be people who have been able to, who have, you know, needed to say things, but needed to say things carefully. They needed to say things that uh, may or may not make uh, the people in power angry. And so they sometimes would have to say these things in ways that the people in power wouldn't necessarily get. But other people that thought like they did would get this. Um, <clears throat> so you do have these layers of meaning. You have these multiple meanings. Um, remember at certain times in history, if you criticize the wrong person, uh, you could end up being executed. So if you had something bad to say about the chieftain or the king or the emperor or whatever, uh, you couldn't openly say it. Um, so you might write a poem uh, about a, a horrible, wicked king. And when the king comes along and says, hey, why are you writing about this about me? The poet could always back out of it and say, Oh no, this isn't about you. You're a wonderful king. This is this is, you know, to show the people what could happen if they had a bad king, to show everybody how lucky we are. So there are always there've always been these hidden levels. And it doesn't necessarily have to be political. It can be things like um, you know, things hidden for other writers to see. You know, other other people who engage in the craft will see these things whereas the general reader might not. And so to do this, you the poets have always had to kind of keep in mind this multiple audience thing, uh, where, okay, the general audience has to get something out of this, enjoy this, otherwise it's going nowhere, but I want to work in all of these other things, too, for these other audiences. Um, when you have uh, multiple audiences, that means you definitely have to slow down and read it several times. You know, your first reading of it is often going to give you the gist of a poem. It's going to give you, you know, sort of what the surface meaning, what the general audience. Um, and then going into it, you're going to get, you know, if you think about it more and more, you think about the way the words could be used, uh, you start to see some of the other possible meanings. This is why poets often use words with, more than one meaning, um, you know, so there's more than one way you can take it. You can either take it as, you know, possibly being something positive or something being negative, depending on how you take that particular word. And this gets into the flexibility of language, which I want to go into more when we get into the translation. Don't want to go into that too much now. Um, you have devices in poetry that help with memory. This is why poetry is one of the oldest uh, forms of literature, uh, because it was made to uh, help the help the person reciting the poem uh, remember large amounts of information. Uh, for example, things like the Iliad and the Odyssey, and you know Beowulf. These were originally oral poems. 
Uh, they were not written down. They were composed to be memorized. So there were particular patterns, particular syllable patterns, rhyme patterns, um, that would help the person reciting the poem remember the whole thing. Uh, and there were certain um, characteristics where if they forgot something, if they were very skilled in using that particular uh, style, they could on the spot make up you know, lines for it. And this also allowed poetry to be tailored to specific uh, time periods. So one of the things about oral poetry is that over time, the poems would change. If you've ever played that um, that game where you have a line of people and one person whispers something into the other, the person next to their ear and that person is supposed to repeat it on down the line, by the time you get to the end of the line, it's often a very different phrase uh, that comes out of that last person's mouth than what the first person said. And this is, one, something that is natural with humans because everyone translates things into their own lens. But in poetry, this was something that allowed it to stay relevant. So as things changed, as, you know, uh, new members of the bloodline came in, as new historical events came in, as new ideas came into the society, um, when the poems were oral, they were allowed, they, this allowed the freedom to add those things and to kind of let the poetry evolve with the time. Uh, one of the difficulties with this is when you get someone who finally does write down the poetry, uh, it becomes impossible to know 100% or even partially what the original was like. It may have started out as a very different poem when it was originally composed, and then over time, as circumstances altered, uh, it became something very different. Now, one of the things that I often use to point this out, or, or to illustrate this, I should say, is some of the old English poetry. Now, a lot of it we know was written uh, a long time before writing existed in England. It was passed down through generations. And it was written down eventually by uh, monks who were Christians. And so in a lot of the Old English poetry, you find these strangely Christian elements in it. Uh, one of them in particular is the poem, The Wanderer. Um, the Wanderer is very much a pagan poem, except you seem to have this little spot at the beginning and at the end where it seems to be... Uh, talking about the Christian God. And one of the things that, you know, this again is the evolution of poetry over generations. Started out as a, you know, Celtic or Norse uh, poem, and it ends up becoming Christian. And it probably went back and forth between the Celtic and the Norse um, and, and picked up things out of both traditions. But again, none of this is something you can ever put together. You can never put your hand on that 100% because the telling of it changes over time. Now, once poetry starts to be written, it does start to obviously become more fixed, uh, becomes more set. So when you read Shakespeare today, you can read the same words that were written back then in his sonnets. The same words Shakespeare wrote back then are the same words you read now. But <clears throat> herein lies the problem. 
poetry always comes from a very specific time period. And whenever you read it, you are always reading it with your own time period in mind. So even when you're coming from something out of the same language tradition, and we don't even have to go back as far as Shakespeare, you know, read uh, something from the 1800s or the 1700s in your native language. Um, a lot of those things that had meaning back then, the meaning has changed or disappeared, doesn't even exist. So there may be parts of the poem you don't even catch because, one, it's written for multiple audiences, but two, the time period that it was written in, um, the things were relevant then are not relevant now. You also have the issue of you have sort of the modern and the contemporary intruding on it. So whenever you read something that is older, even when it's you're in your own language, you are putting things you know about on it. Um, this is one of the things that happens with some of these prophecies, like the prophecies of Nostradamus. You know, people see, oh, he talked about this event or that event. And then people look around at the contemporary world and say, ah, he's talking about this. But if you do any historical research into when this was written, um, most of the things that he prophesied were actually things that were occurring in his time period. You know, when you have prophecies of, you know, floods and famines and, uh, you know, diseases and things like plagues, things like that. You think, oh, these things are happening now. He must have been talking about now. Well, these things have always existed. We've always had famines and plagues and floods and volcanoes and all of these, you know, rising and falling of civilizations. Um, you know, by the time Nostradamus was writing, you had the fall of the Roman Empire. So, you know, and then the falling of other civilizations, the Greek civilization. So he is not necessarily writing about the future but people still take what they see today and project it onto that. And this is something that happens in, you know, in all poetry. Somebody hears a love poem from, you know, 2,000 years ago, and they think about contemporary things about the person they love or things that they know about love. You always bring with you a lot of baggage when you read anything. And this is one of the difficult parts about understanding not only literature and poetry, but understanding other people in general, because everyone starts from their own perspective. And you have to sort of practice getting out of that perspective. Otherwise, sometimes the things that you read, the things that you hear other people say, are not going to make any difference whatsoever. And so, you know, one of the things I've always thought was a wonderful thing about poetry and philosophy and literature in general is that it does allow you to break out of yourself. You have to suspend where you are and what you know, at least temporarily, to kind of get into these other minds, these other ideas, these other places. Now, your your present is always going to re-intrude, and you're going to still make connections. You know, when you read a, a a poem written about war in the 1500s, your brain is going to connect things about wars that happened way after that into the 20th and 21st century. So you're, you're going to make those associations. So this kind of segues into the problems with translation, because 
we've only been talking about poetry within one language, you know, within whatever your native language is, looking at something for a different time period. But you don't even really have to go to a different time period because we all have our own minds. We all have unique perspectives. We have a, um, you know, a biography that does not exactly mimic anyone else's. Yes, we have some overlap with the rest of the world, but we also have things that have happened to only us, to only us as an individual. And so even someone writing in your same time period, there's going to be a little bit of a, of a difficulty understanding completely what they're saying. Because to some extent, we all are locked in ourselves. And again, move this to another time period, that creates a lot of barriers. Now let's move it to another language and talk about translation. And we get a lot of roadblocks when it comes to translations of poetry. Uh, translations of philosophy, translations of prose are much easier because they use um, language that isn't as uh, condensed. They use language that isn't as um, figurative and, ha and open to multiple meanings. Uh, prose writing tends to want to be much more tell <clears throat> telling the story or explaining the philosophy. So it tends to be less ambiguous where Poetry kind of opens the door to lots of other meanings. So we talked about time differences already with translations. Um, you know, think about how difficult it is to uh, know 100% what someone was talking about from the 1500s when they're speaking the same language as you. Now shift to a different language. Uh, and even beyond that, shift to a language that doesn't have a lot of similarities to the language you speak. And this is one of the difficulties that we will be kind of talking about over over and over again this semester with some of the languages of, you know, a lot of these languages from the poetry we'll be discussing not only are very different from English and very different from the translations we're reading, <clears throat> but they're not even similar because a lot of them are dead languages or languages that are barely able to be read by the people who still read that particular language. You know, think about English, how much English has changed. You know, we talked about Old English and Middle English and Modern English. Uh, even without e leaving English, you give a Modern English reader uh, a piece of Old English to read, and they're probably going to get one word, maybe one to ten words per whole page that will somewhat look familiar because that's how much the language has changed. So, you know, not only are we dealing with a different language, a different structure, uh, we're dealing with different, with even people within that language that might struggle with it. <clears throat> now, the language differences are extreme. Um, there are things in one language that another language doesn't have and vice versa. Uh, one of the things that I learned, uh, teaching ESL students when I was teaching in college is that depending on the language they originally spoke, I could figure out <clears throat> I could figure out what language they originally spoke based on the types of mistakes they made. Uh, some languages don't have pronouns like English. There are no pronoun there's no pronoun usage. 
so the people would have the students would have a difficulty understanding which pronoun to use. Some languages don't have tenses. Uh, Chinese doesn't have it doesn't have tenses. It doesn't have past, present, future. Uh, it, it isn't structured that way. Um, language order, word order is different in languages. So even if you just go to something closer like French or Spanish, uh, French and Spanish do not use the same word order as English. Um, you know, if I wanted to say I had a uh, red shirt in French, that word order is switched. I would say I have a shirt red. Um, so, you know, you, you sometimes run into different difficulties in, you know, the, the syntax of the language of how it's put together, the grammar, grammar elements that are important in one language aren't important in another and vice versa. You know, some of the languages like Latin word order doesn't mean anything. Um, you can tell whether it's the, uh, subject or the object, uh, based on the ending on the word. Um, and instead of the word order. So you start to run into a lot of different things because of language. Now, add into this difficulty, culture differences. You know, not only are time periods different, but when you're re when reading most of these, these are very different cultures from, uh, you know, uh, American or uh, English or French, you know, the, they're very different cultures because they're different time periods uh, in different parts of the world. So you have cultural differences. This is another area you kind of struggle with with translations. Um, you know, something that might be very culturally significant or very commonly understood in one culture is either not understood at all or not significant in another culture. And so you miss whole layers of meaning because you don't have the same culture that you're coming from. And so this is one of the tough things about translation. This is one of the tough things about, you know, discussing poetry from other cultures is that you really kind of have to dig in and do the best you can. Now, this shouldn't discourage you. This shouldn't make you feel like, well, I guess I shouldn't just do any of this at all because it's too too impossible to get, you know, the exact meaning. But remember, you can't get the exact meaning even within your own language because there's always different levels of the audience. And the more you dig in, the more layers you can get. You know, you can get a superficial understanding of an ancient Chinese poem. You, you from a translation you can okay i understand this is about you know somebody going off to war and uh regretting it and wishing they were home and, and being angry with the fact that the rulers can't stop getting into war i can get that part um so you you might get the surface but if you keep digging and, and that's what we're going to do with some of these discussions of poetry is keep digging and keep comparing it to other things that uh, from that particular culture and then not only compare it within the culture but then think about how does this relate to my culture because remember we're all the same human beings we have different languages different cultures different traditions but we're still the same human beings which means a lot of the same themes a lot of the same you know essential elements of our lives are going to come out. So 
cultural difference is something that we'll have to um, look into with translations. Um, you know, the differences of individuals. You know, I don't care if you grew up in the same household. Chances are you're not going to have the same opinions and the same way of viewing the world as your siblings. Yes, you'll have a lot of overlap, but you're going to have experiences they don't have. They're going to have experiences you don't have. So all of these things kind of add up to difficulties with translation. Now, the next thing that ends up being a difficulty with translation is the fact that there are usually multiple, multiple ways you can translate something. And one of the things that you will find out is that a translation is as much the creative effort of the translator as it is of the original. Um, you know, a lot of the, who is the writer of these poems that we're going to be discussing, it boils down to the person who translated it. They're translating it through their lens. Um, they're making decisions about things. Because one of the problems that comes up with poetry is, one, poetry has generally particular forms. So do you follow that form? You know, if you want to get, get the sound of it similar so that they get the similar rhythm that they would get in the original. The problem is if you do that, odds are you have to change the meaning of it so much that it's almost unrecognizable as being about the same thing. And you lose a lot of the elements of it and you end up sort of creating your own version of it. Or do you stick to more of the meaning and let the structure go and not worry about, well, it was originally written in rhymed couplets or, you know, whatever the format was or in syllable patterns. I'm, I'm going to not worry about that because it will make it impossible to understand the meaning. So I'm going to go for the meaning. Well, if you do that, your choices are, do I just do a prose translation of it and try to write out the meaning? And again, you lose all of the sound, you lose all of the um, poetic devices that might you know, be allusions to something, might be things that were hidden layers of meaning. Um, and either way you go, it... it boils down to this is the artistic choice of the translator now people might think well this is this is kind of a terrible thing uh, but you have to remember that originality wasn't always valued as far as um, the the story or what something is telling uh, you know if you if you write a poem about an oak tree in ancient China or you know in the present day uh, United States you're still dealing with the same object. It's still an oak tree. It has different significance, different cultural meaning, different perspective you're taking on it, you know. Um, but it's still underneath the same thing. And so as you're looking at this, you realize, okay, there are certain basic elements we all talk about. Um, and then from there, you can start to branch out into an exploration of the culture, an exploration of the thinking of the writer, an exploration of, you know, how does this all connect? So as you're doing this and you're
putting things together, um, you have to realize that, one, you've got to credit two people, the original and whoever translated it. And Shakespeare, you know, if you want to talk about somebody that most, uh, in the English tradition anyways, revere, is Shakespeare. Shakespeare wrote nothing that was original. Um, everything Shakespeare wrote, all of his plots to all of his plays are stolen. But at the time, that wasn't considered stolen. That's just what everybody did. There were certain common stories. Everybody wrote about the same stories. Uh, what made Shakespeare and the other writers of his time period uh, unique was the language they used. You know, what word choice? How did they put this together? Did they add little elements of comedy or did they, you know, focus this more on being tragic? Um, you know, did they do extra, you know, little jokes? Did they do allusions to people who were living or people who were dead? Um, and so it, there always has been a long tradition of, well, we share the same stories. Let's just see how different people tell the same story. Um, if you look at a lot of the modern contemporary movies, a lot of them are remakes of, you know, uh, Shakespeare. They're, they're basically remakes of, you know, old Shakespearean plays. They took the plot of it. They created a new up-to-date modernized movie set in the present. But the, the, the plot, the characters, all of that is, is basically from a different source. So as we go through these and as we translate these, um, one of the things I'm going to recommend is if you can get a hold of other translations than the ones I discuss, um, look at other translations. See how other people have translated it. Um, because this will give you a better picture. You know, the Iliad and the Odyssey have been translated by dozens and dozens of people. And each of the people who translates it is bringing a lot of the elements of how they choose to translate it out of their own time period, but out of their own personal tastes as well. So, Diving into translation and poetry is tough. Um, diving into poetry is tough. But it is something that is worth it because it's one of those things where it's it's not you read this for five minutes and then you're done with it and you go on about your life and you can forget about it. It is something that causes you to think. It is something that draws you into it more. And this is always been the purpose of poetry it's always been the purpose of literature and it's always been the purpose of philosophy you know you sort of put this idea into the reader's head or these ideas and then you hope that the reader then takes those ideas and thinks about them and compares them to their world and you know compares it to the lives of others um, writing literature philosophy these are always ways, these always have been ways of uh, expanding the way people think, breaking people out of uh, the way they see the world and kind of shifting it a little bit so they can see life from a little bit perspective, different perspective and get more out of it. Now, a lot of it is written with particular goals in mind. Uh, for example, whatever the personal philosophy of the writer or the people in power uh, that are putting out the literature, they might be, you know, shifting you towards these are the important goals. 
these are the important values. These are the things that you should never do. You know, a lot of what Beowulf, I've talked about this before, a lot of what Beowulf is about, yes, it's an action story, but it's also an ethical story. It's, you know, how to be a, a, a warrior, how to be a leader, how to be, you know, a, a servant to the, to the leader. Uh, what is the etiquette when you uh, eat in the dining hall? You know, what is the etiquette among warriors? Uh, when we go into, you know, look into the uh, courtly romances, the, the Arthurian stories, you know, these are things of, you know, educating knights, trying to civilize knights. You know, how should a knight behave? How should you behave with a lady? How should you behave with other knights? So there is a lot of uh, philosophy behind even poetry. And as you dig through these things and, you know, you get the surface meaning down first and you start to examine the other areas, what you're doing is from a very small work, you're starting to expand your view of the world, um, both the world you live in and the world that other people live in. And as you do this, this is this is something that is increasing your ability to um, not only understand things, but to be more successful in navigating the world with different people. Okay, this episode is going to be somewhat short. Uh, I'm cutting this one off uh, about half of what I've been doing the episodes this season um, because I don't want to overly go into this. Some of it I've gone into before, um, and I do want to get into... Uh, coming up soon directly into translate talking about the translations of the poetry and that's what we'll be doing next time we'll be talking about the odes um, so i hope all of you are doing well i hope all of you are staying safe have a good day